asks crazy questions of which it doesn't matter what their answer is. Cubidin and Mylanta are the two most dangerous drugs in an emergency department. <laughs> what do you do if you disagree with the hospital policy? You've got to have a communication system that works. What are the two things that could really go wrong with any patient potentially in front of you? If we're using ECAS-3 as the basis to make that decision, you might as well sprinkle fairy dust on it. You would be out of your mind to write protocols that would address this. What are the two things that could really go wrong with any patient potentially in front of you? Is this like the elephant sitting on your chest? He said, oh no, elephant, much worse. Hey, Rick Bicotta, Greg Henry, room 1205. Hi, Marriott. Rick. This is Boston. This is the annual Scientific Assembly issue of Risk Management Monthly. Sitting in Greg's room here, he got rid of all the women that were here, and the booze bottles are piling up in the corner. The goal, actually, we're going to do a couple of great interviews for you, and we have some letters, and we have some things in the news that I think you ought to be aware of. Greg will do wine of the month, and I think that will be the issue. Well, listen, Rick, it's just great that we're here in Boston, surrounded by the best emergency medicine talent in the country. If these guys don't know the answer, I don't know who does. Yeah, well, actually, it's a great conference. The ASEP's got 4,600 people registered for this. It's a new world's record, I think. 4,600, four days, and there's seven or 800 daily people. So probably a little over 5,000 will be exposed. Greg, let's do a little bit of what's in the news. I don't know if you saw this. This is incredible. Radiation overdose of a child with a CT. A rural California hospital is being sued by the parents of a two-year-old who underwent a CT during an ED visit for a neck injury. He fell out of bed or something like the day before. The parents were in the CT suite and claimed that because the child would not lie still, the radiology technician took 151 scans over a 65-minute period. 151 scans. Now, to be perfectly fair... She pushed the button 151 times, and they stopped the scan because the kid was moving. So it wasn't like it was 151 complete total scans. But be that as it may, the radiologist reviewed the CTs and basically said, ah, these are not good quality. Another tech did another 15 scans of this kid's neck. Two hours after the child was scanned, radiation burns were noted around the lower part of the both eyes and the lower part of the face. An attorney said the child received seven times the anticipated amount of radiation. A blood sample was sent to a special center in Ireland where they looked at chromosomes. Fairly serious chromosome damage for the radiation exposure was noted. This was in antmini.com. I think it's a radiology kind of thing, antmini.com. On March 24th, there was an update. The hospital was fined $25,000 by the state of California, and the technologist was fired and lost her license. A medical physicist calculated the boy's lifetime risk for fatal cancer was increased by 39% as a result of receiving, look at this, 2,800 millisieverts and possibly as high as 11,000 millisieverts, which is, it's inconceivable to me to say, well, you increased it 39%. When you get a CT of the belly, that's 10 millisieverts, and your risk of dying from that is 1 in 2,000. And this kid, look at this. 2,800 to 11,000 millisieverts. The pediatric imaging expert said the normal dose of the entire pediatric spine would be expected to be in the range of 1.5 to 4 millisieverts. This kid's getting 2,800. Yeah, it's really not a funny condition here. Let's think about this for just one second. We don't have all the facts, but the bottom line is very simple. 
there are very few conditions that you've got to shoot that film on, number one. Number two, we do have ways now, if we really think we need the film, of sedating a child. Well, actually, it's interesting because in further testimony, the kid was in a papoose, and the parents noted the kid went to sleep shortly after being put in it. And obviously, there's some contention here regarding those facts. But I think the issue for us is, so an emergency physician ordered this thing. The question is, was it appropriate that the CTB ordered? Because clearly this is a technologist issue and a hospital employee issue. But do you think that somebody could back and say, listen, if you had not ordered this thing, which was not needed in the first place, my little kid would not have been subjected to 151 CAT scans. I think that's a large stretch there, Rick. After all, there is real controversy as to which studies are needed when. If in good faith he thought that the study was done, he had reasonable reliance upon the idea that they would have only gotten three or four millisieverts at that moment in time. How does he know that they're going to be screwing up? Here's the problem. If the technologist thought they were having problems, call the emergency back, send the patient back, have them sedate the patient, because they know that they're giving multiple exposures. If they think they have to give too much in the way of radiation exposure, just notify the department to put the kid out. All of us have done it. We don't like to do it, but you know what? That's considerably better than roasting this kid. Can you imagine this kid's got radiation burns on their face? Imagine what's in their brain. Or what isn't in their brain. Or what isn't in their brain. This is a serious problem. Right. This kid's going to be playing the offensive line at Auburn or something. That was the issue. The issue here was addresses cancer, but I'm sure an attorney will find the paper that talks about intellectual capacity. And unless this kid's going to be Albert Einstein, there's going to be some substantial issues, I think, about, well, he's not doing very well in school. This is a result of this radiation. That's right. It's either autism from his immunizations or the fact that he got a CT scan to his head. By the way, there's a study that was released and then reported in the popular press in the New York Times in August of this year, August 27th, in which they say at least 4 million Americans under 65 will have cancer based on high doses of radiation which are given in their youth. You know, when we think about these millisieverts which are going on now, 450 times the radiation dose of a chest x-ray goes to a child when they get an abdominal CT scan. Whatever happened to re-examining the child? You know, I don't agree with all the facts in this case, and I don't think we have all the facts, but one thing we ought to think about as doctors is, do we need to be exposing all these kids to all this radiation? And I think there can be problems here. There is this recurring theme in the literature that I think have been emphasizing about the fact that there is something coming out of that machine that may be problematic and that there is a risk-benefit analysis that must be done here and especially with younger children. And we just did an abstract not too long ago, and in fact it was this month's issue, that gave a whole pitch on shared decision-making and advising parents. You know, we get permission for doing IVPs and all of this other stuff. We don't get any permission for doing a CAT scan. We just say, it's the thing to do kind of thing. But there are these risks which are clearly inadequately appreciated. And the fact of the matter is, is that kids are the ones who are getting the most rapid increase in CTs are those being done in kids because the fast machines don't require that you sedate them. So the threshold for getting CTs is going way, way down. Well, the problem is this. I still don't think 
it's fair to think that a family can be put under the duress of saying, well, here's the facts, you make the decision. That's crap. What's called shared decision-making? Well, yeah, but shared decision-making is not for real. The reason they came to me is because I have a higher level of knowledge about that particular product. When I go into the guy who does the brakes on my car, we don't do shared decision-making. He says... The brake pads are bad and they're dangerous. What kind of shared decision making is done in that? Well, Dr. Case? Henry, you want the good pads or you want the cheap pads? Yeah, right. Well, I Maybe. think I'm going to be selling the car in about a year, so give me the cheap pads. Yeah, you understand what I'm talking about, Rick? If we think for one second that those families can actually make that kind of decision, I think that's abrogating our responsibility to lay it out for them. What we can say is, given my child, this is what I would do. But you know what? To not give them real direction on this sort of thing, that's a huge mistake. And I think it's cowardly. I think the other spin on that is the parents who want a CT, or you don't think they want it. It's an easy job now to talk people out of it. Oh, absolutely. Which wasn't really the case in the past. So in any case, the whole point here is, view these children as your own children. And do unto them as you would do to your own. Now, some of you might want to irradiate your kids. I don't know. But but the fact of the matter is is that there's way too much radiation being given. And some people take the position, well, it's not my butt. I'm going to cover my butt by getting this radiograph. I know the likelihood of an abnormality, especially when it could be fixed, is extraordinarily small. But I don't want to lose any sleep over this case. And so I'm going to irradiate this kid. I think that that all needs to be readjusted a bit now in view of all of these papers that are talking about the overutilization of CAT scans. Yeah, and I think that is this really a malpractice question? Well, the problem is the harm done is separated from the moment of exposure by probably 20 or 30 years anyway. So it's probably not as much of a malpractice question is a common sense risk to the patient question, and we need to take care of that. Okay, let's move on to a few letters. Here's a listener who wishes to remain anonymous. In New Jersey, this was a case where a person alleged that they did not receive a proper evaluation for their chest pain. And so it kind of got a little Imitala-like. And the hospital had no written policy about what would be the evaluation of a chest pain patient. So in this case, to establish what the hospital did or the people in the hospital did, they were requesting the records of all patients who presented to this emergency department with chest pain in the two weeks prior to the visit of this patient. And the writer said this would be viewed as unprecedented in terms of the setting of a standard by looking at other people's records where you take their scratch their name out, but there's a chest pain, and what did you do, what did you do, what did you do, what did you do, over and over and over, and our poor patient didn't get that stuff. That's very strange. Fortunately, this case was settled, And the fellow who wrote this said that the Mtala issue of sorts went away, although Mtala is not about malpractice. It's about civil breaking of a law. So I'm surprised that, frankly, it went away. But he said it did. But it was going to be a real concern because I think that you would agree that the standard of care is established by expert testimony. The standard of care is established in every case from the stand by experts. And the reason that is is it doesn't matter what they do in one hospital in New Jersey with one group of doctors, maybe there's four or five or six or seven who work there, it's what the overall 
view of the standard of care in these United States at a given moment. So the real question to ask is, what would a physician of like or similar training do under like or similar circumstances? The other thing is, for a hospital to think it pulls in every chest pain chart and can do a statistical audit to decide what the standard of care is, the last time I checked, we have to do this individually. We practice medicine one patient at a time. Because somebody comes in who's 28 and who has a tender chest wall and we don't work them up for heart disease doesn't mean we've done an inadequate evaluation of chest pain. You and I have all sent people home, no chest x-ray, no nothing, who had obvious Tietz's syndrome. There's no way in hell you're going to be able to do a statistical broad look at chest pain cases and say that this is the standard of care for that individual patient who came in. And our poor patient felt was treated below that standard. Well, I guess another question that would derive from this is, should hospitals, I think I already know the answer, should hospitals have policies of what should be considered to be the appropriate evaluation for chest pain, abdominal pain, in the view of EMTALA to determine whether, in fact, you have a true medical emergency or not. I have no idea how you'd write that policy. As I was remembering in Zachary Cope's textbook of the abdomen, there are probably 200 diseases listed there. Are you going to write 200 protocols for that? By the way, is the protocol for abdominal pain in an 80-year-old who's recently had cancer the same protocol for a 19-year-old? with right lower quadrant pain and rebound? Well, if I were to cut to the chase, I would say you would be out of your mind to write protocols that would address this. So because this hospital didn't have them, the answer is not to be writing protocols. Well, the truth of the matter is we have a protocol. It's called undergraduate school, (laughs) medical school, residency, board certification. That's what we call the steps you go through to be able to tailor the examination correctly. And I think the farther we get from that, why do we even need doctors then, Rick? I have no idea why. This is the law gone wrong again. Jim Heisen wrote that we need to get off the we, they, us, them, patients are the enemy point of view. And he mentioned, and I have affirmed this in the past, not that it particularly matters, that there are patients who are harmed in the medical setting. They do need redress, and that there has a growing literature that says a lot of people who have been harmed are not able to get redressed because no attorney will take their case because the limit on pain and suffering is 250000 in California, or this person is not worth anything in that a 75 or 80 or 85-year-old woman died and a dead person is not worth very much. And the same thing happened. I told you about the cases where a kid who had club foot right. had surgery. This kid died in the, as a result of the surgery. That child is considered worth nothing. So pain and suffering limit $250,000. The lawyers don't think it's worth their effort. Well, I certainly hope, Jim, that you don't think that we're getting into the we-they argument. We have certainly tried to make this course one that looks relatively objectively at the law and problems. What you have to recognize, though, is the U.S. system for resolving these disputes is not based on either compassion or intelligence. There are countries in the world, and I would point to the New Zealanders, who have taken this entire matter out of this kind of court system, and they look for proper reimbursement. You realize, Jim, that of every dollar you send to the insurance company, and 
being in an insurance business a little bit at this point in time, I will tell you this right now, probably less than one out of six dollars, less than one out of six dollars that goes to the insurance company ever goes to an injured party. It's dribbled and pulled and schmutched off to the grease of the system. Lawyers, experts, accountants, this, that, and another thing. And understand, even if the plaintiff prevails, between 30 and 40% of that money went into the lawyer's pocket and not into their account. So, Jim, we don't want to make it we against them. We don't agree with that. But I'll tell you what right now. Part of health care reform ought to be to take care of this problem because it's ridiculous. Well, uh, Mr. Obama said that's not on the table, I don't think, right now. Uh, health care reform in terms of malpractice. He took it off the table? Yeah, he told the MA that, yeah, I know you guys are interested in it, but don't think we're going to go there. Yeah, yeah. Hal Smith wonders how easy it would be to defend a wrong x-ray interpretation by an emergency physician when there's always availability of a radiologist someplace, Nighthawk or your radiologist during the day. And I wrote him back saying, listen, it is within the core privileges of emergency medicine to be able to interpret it's certainly plain x-rays. And if you make a mistake, the idea that, well, this, this could have been read by a radiologist and therefore this mistake might have been avoided is it's not extrapolatable. You don't have a cardiologist reading your EKGs. You read it EKGs. It's within the core da- data set of yeah. emergency physicians. And so I think the analogy is there. I don't think anybody would say every x-ray should be read by a radiologist because there is a radiologist available somewhere in the world to read that x-ray. Well, we read them for different purposes, too, Rick. When an emergency doc looks at a chest X-ray of someone who's come in from trauma, he's got to ask a series of questions. Is there something on that film that would require me to interdict the cycle tonight? The next day, if there's a reading that comes back and said there's a small one-centimeter nodule located here or there, there has to be a system that will take care of that. I don't believe it's the emergency physician's responsibility to pick up other subtle things on the chest film. If that was the case, then why don't we just call ourselves radiologists? Oh, you know, God. And knock off at 4 o'clock. The real question here is to what level and for what interdictive purposes. If an emergency doc misses a displaced fracture, that's one thing. If there's a small ditzel there that they splinted anyway and the radiologist picks up the next day, it's a no harm no foul problem. I don't think those are a question. What is a question is if you are not trained in certain procedures, and I'll have to say right now, I'm not trained to look at abdominal CAT scans. I can pick up certain things there. I'm pretty good at looking at the head, but there's no question in abdominal CAT scans. I want a radiologist to read that film when I need it for the benefit of the patient. There you go. Richie Schwab over at Holy Name Hospital in Teaneck, New Jersey, a buddy from many years ago, writes an interesting question. So I wrote an essay that looked at payments in the setting of lawsuits, payments. And one of the elements was the higher the amount of insurance you have, the more likely you're going to be making big payments. Because the limits of your insurance are often shot for in terms of these serious cases. So he is an insurance agent saying, listen, you've got $2 million, $4 million, you should go down to one million, three million, because of the same thing that we said. And Richie said that two million, four million costs a lot more than one million, three million. So, do the limits of insurance generally equal the limits that you can lose generally? Well, first of all, it's very rare that an emergency physician is ever sued by himself. 
it is rare that the hospital and the group are not brought in on the action. There's often other physicians involved, the follow-up physician, the family physician, lots of other people. The other thing is, the reason we carry certain limits is not because we think it's a good idea for our protection. It's required by the hospital for you to hold the contract. Although, at our hospital, it's one million, three million. Well... And he's at 2-4, and the whole issue is, can I ratchet down? Will that be a safe thing to do? I think it's perfectly safe for him... What it is is inconvenient and worrisome for the hospital because they know this. They are essentially the deep pocket. By the way, in Michigan right now, we still have some contracts where it's 200000 600000 because the insurance is so crazy. And what we know is the hospital is always included. But most contracts that are signed by private groups in the country, the amount of insurance coverage is dictated or at least negotiated between the hospital and the group, and it's to protect the hospital's deep pocket. It is not to necessarily protect the physician. Well, it sounds like in this case, Richie does have the choice between what level they're going to get and could ratchet down. Well, if he's got the choice, (laughs) you want to pay more money or don't you? Greg, the last letter is from Dave Goff. We just got that today. I just saw the email. Yeah, I saw it. Lancaster General Hospital, beautiful area of the country. Gorgeous, Pennsylvania. They have these little towns around there, like Intercourse and what is it, some other strange places. Isn't that where Arnold Palmer drove that tractor? Latrobe. And Latrobe, Latrobe, Latrobe yeah, Pennsylvania. Yeah. That was the home of Rolling, Rolling Rock, Rock Beer. Rolling Rock Beer, right, right exactly. Okay. Anyway, he says, how do you deal with the hospital policy that you think is unsafe? Specifically, he's talking about our hospital wants us to get them to the cath lab, these STEMIs, immediately, if not sooner, and skip the chest X-ray and go right over there. And his point of view is, you know, these people are going to get heparin. Can't we take a quick chest x-ray? I want to make sure that mediastinum is no big surprise kind of thing. It'll only take a few minutes. And so his point of view is, although the risks are small statistically, I want to know that that person's not having a dissection because if we give them heparin, that's going to kill them. So this is something where there's two points of view. And he says, well, how do I deal with a hospital policy that I have a problem with? Well, first of all, I can't believe that they can't get a portable chest X-ray done before the damn cardiologist calls back. Well, that would be the most easy solution, but more philosophically, let's not focus on that point, but philosophically, what do you do if you disagree with the hospital policy? Well, the first thing you can do in a case like this, where there is some controversy, is sit down with the hospital and ask for this to be done, that you get a letter of indemnification. Which you attach What's to your policy. What's the of hospital actually doing this? Well, but the point are going to say, no way, man. Well, We're then the point email. is you've brought the issue up to the hospital, and there's a paper trail to follow. We told the hospital we thought this was unsafe. We tried to get you to cover it. There's emails. There's letters. There's meetings. So you know what? If you ever get this shoved up your nose because of a dissection, I would just pass this off to the hospital and say, Bye-bye. <laughs> well, I think that's a good point, Greg. And I think, in general, a good way to handle it. Also, he accuses us of bigotry. Bigotry. He's not the first. That's one of the nicer things <laughs> that's been said about us. Because we do no beer reviews. We only review wine. Oh, my God. Rolling Rock. We, we, just, we, we, just, we just talked uh, about okay. Uh, okay. All right. Rolling Rock's a fine We've, little beer. And it's from Pennsylvania. Latrobe, Pennsylvania. So there you go. We are not discriminating. And you and I have enjoyed a Rolling Rock occasionally. It's yes, perfectly had, good. Actually, we enjoyed Yingling's, too, out here. Oh, this very is the good. Eastern beer, Yingling. Yep. It's very good. It's one of my favorites. Here's another one I saw, Greg. 
Thrombolysis for stroke now is okay to four and a half hours. May 28th advisory from the American Heart Association says, okay, 4.5 hours after stroke based on the ECAS-3 trial, which we reported in the abstracts. Although they certainly say the quicker, the better. But now that's extended out there. Yeah, if, if we're using ECAS-3 as the basis to make that decision, we might as well sprinkle fairy dust on them. I'm sure that ECAS-3 has been reported in the abstract. Sure. It, yeah. And there was another trial, a SITS or SITSMOST or something to that effect. But these things also have to be jived with the Atlantis trial, which was stopped prematurely because of in- clearly increased problems. So the issue here is, has the Heart Association jumped the gun? Wait Clear- a second. The Heart Association has jumped the gun on everything. They're still the people who think that running long-term ACLS on patients works. They're the people who gave us epinephrine and atropine. Just understand, they have a view of this, and they're looking toward this, and quite frankly, I don't agree with this. Now, what it means is you may have expanded the liability of the emergency physician. Because well, that's the whole point. Well, of course, because it doesn't matter what my personal decision is. It's letting the patients know what options may be available. You mean shared decision-making? Shared decision-making. Is that making. what that's called? Well, but, Rick, <laughs> this isn't a three-year-old with no problems sitting in front of you. This is somebody who's dating and in bad shape. You feeling lucky, punk? Yeah, exactly <laughs> right. So I think the issue is, in the past, when we looked at the lawsuits regarding TPA and stroke, The vast preponderance, by far, was because of failure to give it. Now, with the window open substantially wider, it's going to be even tougher. And if you were not a big believer in TPA in the past, but hid behind that three-hour window, it's going to be a lot harder to hide behind the time frame. One of the things I should tell you is that there were exclusionary criteria in ECAS, and you probably ought to know them, like age older than 80 any use of anticoagulants. There were prior studies where they said if the INR was 1.7 or less, you can give it. And ECAS was any use of anticoagulants. Baseline stroke scores of 25 on the NIH stroke scale. Well, I know the NIH stroke scale like the back of my hand. Yeah, sure. No, I don't. But if you're looking for reasons to kind of be careful, follow these guidelines. And then those with diabetes and a stroke mixed in together. I don't really know why they were excluded, but they were. So you need to know the exclusion criteria. But I think that this opens up a lot more doctors to the potential of litigation. So I think the key thing is, as you said, informed decision-making. What we're going to see is it's going to be within three months that the Heart Association is going to say that this is now, quote-unquote, the standard of care. I know it's within the next 90 days, Rick, as we're recording this, that this is going to be carried out. Well, I thought it did. I thought this May 28th advisory was the go-ahead. The May 28th advisory said this is on the radar screen. We're redoing some of our recommendations. I think we're going to get the final publication probably sometime either late December or January. So planned by February 1st. This is going to be out there. People are going to be talking about it. And the fact that the literature that defends this is less than mediocre. If you look at that study and the exclusions and the way they followed people and how their problems were entered into the system, this is not great science. Although, frankly, even if ECAS-3, the results are justified, it's statistically possible that if you did five studies using the same identical methodology, three of them may show that the use of it 
after four and a half hours is not good. So this may be, by chance alone, a study that showed something good. So normally when you're going to make a big change in policy, you need some compelling data to make that switch. Here is one study, or one at most, and yet there are prior studies, there are a ton of priors that said it didn't work. So now we have conflicting data. And for them to jump on this, even if ECAS is correct, that one study is, why don't you repeat ECAS and see if the results are still the same? Yeah, but in this vein, in the risk management vein, they have to be aware that this is going to be floating out there. It's something you have to respond to. The other side of it is for emergency decks, if they're giving the drug and the real danger is going to be, did they have an informed consent to give the drug? If the family's there... Did they understand this isn't a miracle drug? There is some percentage chance of some improvement. Then I think you can carry it on shared decision-making in that situation. Well, the numbers are important. Remember, NINDS said 12% got better and 6% got worse. So the vast majority had no change. And that gap between 12% and 6% is probably the narrowest therapeutic gap I know of in clinical medicine. Yes, the difference, the 12% right. difference you're talking about is between those who got nothing and those who got the TPA. The difference in those two groups was about 12%. So there you go. So it's out there, guys and ladies. Be aware that this is going to make your life a little bit more problematic if you're not a big believer in this stuff. Any final comments on that matter, Greg? No, I think that this is not going to be resolved. It's ugly. And I look forward to being involved in the defense of many emergency physicians on this matter. Well, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, I'm not on this month's tape officially, am I? Because I wasn't at ASEP because I was getting ready for our essentials course and I just couldn't do it this year for the first time in 14 years. No ASEP for me, which was a little disturbing, but, you know, it is what it is. Look, you're about to hear a fantastic interview. This is a series of interviews, actually, that were done during ASEP by Greg and uh, Rick. And I think they came out fantastically. During this interview, they start talking about chest pain and the workup of chest pain patients. And they refer back to the great debate from a few months ago here on Risk Management Monthly. And I have to butt in at that point as well and, and disagree and uh, sort of restate my case. But anyway, let's get into this. I think you're really going to enjoy it. These guys are smart. So every year when we come to the Scientific Assembly, we take the opportunity to meet with the movers and shakers of emergency medicine. Oh, and it couldn't be bigger today, Yeah, well, right? we have some big stars in front of us big right stars. now. The here stars. In 1205 of the Marriott. I'm not worthy, sir. No, you aren't. That's very clear. And move on. Graham Billingham and Bob Bitterman are both with Epic, Emergency Physicians Insurance Company. And they basically run this thing. Now, in the past, we've heard from Bob specifically on issues related to EMTALA. He is our EMTALA expert. Right. And you gave us a couple of nice interviews on that. But now you have a different hat on. Now you are the CEO of this insurance company, Graham. The two of you are running this thing. And tell us what's been going on in terms of what are you seeing, any new trends, any new potholes that we should be aware of in, well, the, in Rick, the field. in all fairness, with full disclosure... Just understand, we go back with these guys a long time. I taught his wife anatomy. You understand that? <laughs> Dr. Bitterman's wife understunderstands anatomy because she talked to me. That's why he's a happy man. Is so your, I just want to take credit doctor? for that. I, didn't know that. I got my job because of my wife. <laughs> <laughs> I was down at Cincinnati and looking for a job. She wanted to move back to Ann Arbor. So I heard of this group, Emergency Physicians Medical Group. EPMG. Medical Group, EPMG. EPMG. I spent so long, Greg, I forgot. 
And so I sent up an application. I get back a two-page, single-spaced letter, and the whole first page is all about my wife. <laughs> Anatomy. For five bucks, I'll burn her picture. I mean, he hasn't changed. <laughs> and on and on and stuff. And oh, just and that. And so, of course, on page two, it says, sure, come for an interview. <laughs> but you had to read all that other stuff So first. I had to read all the stuff. So I call up my wife. And say, who is Greg Henry? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I got the skinny on who Greg was back then. And, you know, one thing led to another. And so my wife claims, not only do I have everything else because of her, I have my job because of her. <laughs> it's all because of Dr. Henry. These here. things happen. These things happen. But so, they've grown into big stars, Rick. And, the and children grow up, as Greg We're not worthy. Yes. yes. And now we come to them for answers. But we want answers. Our listeners want answers. They're scared. They think they're going to get sued. What are we going to do? What trends are out there? Let's see the first Two or three things. If you had to do one, two, or three things today to make this stuff go away, what do you want to do? Robert. Uh, Graham first. Well, thanks for having us up, guys. A couple things. I think Bob and I come to the conclusion that Coumadin and Mylanta are the two most dangerous drugs in an emergency department. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> and if you can just get rid of those, <laughs> we'll all be good. But, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly is we still see a lot of the same recurring things. I think that if you take a look at neurologic and cardiac and abdominal catastrophes, those are the big three in malpractice. There's no question about it. A stroke, we've talked about that before previously, a couple of years, and the whole issue with thrombolytics. Missed MIs, particularly young missed female. MIs is a real bugaboo, and abdominal pain catastrophes, aneurysms, appendicitis is still cropping up. So those are sort of the big three for us. But there are some new things on the horizon that we probably ought to spend some time talking about. One of the interesting things is that a lot of the malpractice claims that we're seeing now have really to do with the environment that good, well-qualified emergency positions are practicing in and really paying attention to kind of the operational risk. And by that, I mean problems of triage, problems of boarding, even problems on admitted patients that we never used to get dragged into before, we are now getting dragged into. A good example is admitted. I think we were all in residency. We were all taught three strikes and you're out. You put the patient in and we don't necessarily have to figure it out. But we find that on a couple different fronts, on those admitted patients, did you admit them to the right floor, doctor? Did you do everything that you could have done while they're in the emergency department? And that means, is there a consultant you should have got, a test you should have ordered, or a treatment you should have given? So those kinds of things that we're getting pulled into, and I'd be curious to get Bob's thoughts on some of the issues. The trend that I'm really talking about is not just getting sued for failure to diagnose and failure to treat, but delay in diagnosis and delay in treatment that has nothing necessarily to do with the clinical acumen of the physician and everything to do with the practice. As the attorneys say... Care delayed is care denied. Yeah, well, Absolutely. we used to admit somebody and sort of wash our hands of it. The guy will take care of it. He'll order the consults or order the medications. And now, if you don't get that stuff in advance, start the antibiotics, get the surgeon involved. It takes one hours to make that happen in the emergency department or upstairs. So they expect you to do it before they go upstairs. Well, it's really happened, I think. In all fairness to everyone listening, there are basically three insurance guys sitting here talking about this. We write the checks. And we don't really care who we write the checks to, but... Just that they're small checks. Just that they're small checks, and they're final checks is what we really like. 
the real problem here is that if you're going to do something within the first two or three hours, or if it would have been done in the first two or three hours upstairs, just do it in the department. No question. Great advice. No question. Nobody should leave the department with an infectious disease diagnosis who doesn't have some antibiotic given. Just pick one. That's right. Just grab one off the shelf. change it. They never sue over the the choice of antibiotic. You don't call the guy and say, what would you like to give? No. You say, I've given X. What would you like to order next? Yeah, would you so like answer, something else? You've already got something on board. And first of all, we're pretty close to it. You tend to get a better choice and know what's going on sometimes in your consultants because you're just taking care of the patient. Okay. Graham listed sort of the big three, and if he had to pick one of those, we would pick chest pain. No question about That's it. Still, still the issue. big number one. Still the biggest money lost. And still the biggest money's lost. And what it is, is, I think we all think, is that most physicians don't realize they're not good at figuring out who has chest pain that's cardiac and who doesn't. We think we know how, but we really don't. When you go back and look at the studies retrospectively, whether you think that pain is cardiac or not, you're wrong the vast majority of the time. You just simply don't know. So it may look like GERD. It may look like something else. It may look like atypical chest pain. But unless you can prove it's something, you can prove he's got a knife in his back. It's, right. you, can see, you can see something on the x-ray. He's got a broken rib. You ought to think it's cardiac until you can prove otherwise. Well, I actually had a case that, (laughs) unfortunately, we watched a lot of money wander out the door on a 40-year-old man who came in with a little chest pain. They said, what were you doing? He says, well, yesterday I was pulling my boat up a hill on a trailer. So we examined him, and on the physical exam that was done, there was no musculoskeletal found. There were no sore chest, moving the arms didn't hurt. Couldn't reproduce the Couldn't symptoms. Couldn't reproduce the symptoms, and yet he said, muscular skeletal chest pain. Well, you know, if it's muscular skeletal and he's still got it, you ought to be able to make it. It was the proof of the malpractice. Wait a minute. Fat, smoker, hypertensive, pulling a boat up a hill on its trailer. Give me a break, guy. Yeah, that's the classic Graham calls it going down the garden path. I call it patient describing symptoms to known parameters. They know about, I can injure my back, but they don't really understand ischemic pain and how it works. It's the same thing with the back pain patient. What you do? I hurt my back in the garden the day before. Well, they don't know that that sudden excruciating pain is a ruptured aneurysm. They ascribe it to something they know. That's what we're supposed to do. The doctor's supposed to put his head on and figure that out. Don't let patients talk you down that pathway. Well, there's no question, too, that no patient in and of themselves knows what story to tell you. There were two papers published in the Annals a few years back that said, can the description of the pain rule out any particular disease? And the answer was, not with any degree of certainty. Was it a stabbing pain? Was it a shooting pain? Was it a pressure pain? I always like to tell the story. of I only had one man in my entire career who actually had an elephant sit on his chest. And, of course, he was a gentleman from India who was a mechanical engineer at the University of Michigan. And when he was a little boy, he helped raise baby elephants that they would use in India. (laughs) And the elephant did roll on his chest. So I had to ask him the question while he's having his MI. Is this like the elephant sitting on your chest? He said, oh, no, elephant, much worse. (laughs) And so we asked crazy questions of which it doesn't matter what their answer is. That's well, sort of what I was getting at that most people don't understand is that you can't tell by that. You go back retrospectively and like 20, 30% will say, I had heartburn or I had something else. You simply cannot tell by that. So you have to prove it's not what it is. 
I think that the whole concept here about tunnel vision in emergency medicine is a really dangerous thing because one of the things we're trying to do is we're trying in an environment that's chaotic to rapidly come to a conclusion. So we tend to tune out the things and try and hone in on a diagnosis and exclude other things that may be perfectly reasonable. But if you hear nausea and my whole family went to the taco stand, all of a sudden, it's got to be GI, it can't be cardiac. This relates to your comment about Maalox, right? Exactly. <laughs> I don't know where it ever started. There was never any literature that said it worked, but all of us have seen those cases when they said, well, two hits of Maalox, and he was feeling a little better. <laughs> I mean, if I see that come in on a chart to my office, what I know is, oh my God, they think it ruled out a myocardial cause. Has anybody ever seen a paper that said that worked? You know, about six months ago, we did a paper in the abstracts that looked at risk factors and the association of risk factors with the likelihood of having a myocardial infarction. And everybody needs to be extraordinarily clear on this. If you take a 1,000 people, the risk of having a heart attack will be higher if you're a smoker, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, and diabetes. Yes, that's true, statistically speaking. But any one individual, those risk factors are absolutely totally worthless and you hear doctors all the time saying well they had no risk factors risk factors are just irrelevant in one person and you see this all the time they think that that reflects that they did a good job also two months ago we had a debate and i'm interested in your view of this because mel and i had a debate i took the point of view of the heart association which says if you cannot tell a person that this is not cardiac pain that you are in essence obligated to measure a set of do a troponin do an ekg let some time go by do another troponin and ekg and if those things are both okay and during that period that person's not had no ectopy or recurrence of chest pain that before you can say it's not your heart. You've got to do another test. Now, what that other test is... A provocative whether, whether test. A CT angiogram or... Yeah. That is not clear what that test is. But we have so many doctors who basically are giving patients the assurance that, well, it's probably not your heart on inadequate data. They have not provoked them. And most people have something better to do than to come into the emergency department with some scary chest pain, which they don't have anymore. My wife made me come in. And the opposite side was, no, you can tell who these people are. You don't need to do this at all the people. It's going to cost a huge amount of money. And the vast majority of these people don't have coronary disease. And use your own judgment. And I don't think you can. And it was warm that night. Of course he was sweating. One yeah. drop of sweat is to me profound diaphoresis, and it doesn't matter whether it's on the patient or on me. That's it. Well, that's not exactly what I said, Rick, you ignorant <laughs> Go back and listen to it. The point is made both ways. I was saying that you don't take 20-year-olds and work them up for chest pain just because you don't know what they have, because we don't know what most people don't have. So shut We've also seen a couple of cases that we've taken a look at where the diagnosis of anxiety has shown up and all of a sudden we're treating cardiac ischemia with benzodiazepines. And you look back at those records and how did the patient present? Short of breath, sweaty, palpitations. The way all excited. Exactly. The way all excited. Clearly a neurotic <laughs> manifestation. Right. right. The flip it, side of the risk factor issue is it shows that you've thought about things. You ask questions. The chart looks good. You look good. It's easier for a defense attorney to explain to the jury, look, you asked all the right questions. You thought about things. That's just it. They're not the right questions, really. Well, no, but they look good in the fact <clears throat> that you are thinking of the disease process. So from a thoroughness process, it kind of looks good. Now, I happen to agree with you. That's the argument I make 
is if you can't prove it's something else. I just say it a different way. Yes, if exactly. If you can't prove it's something else, you've got to assume it's cardiac until proven otherwise. I, that's you ask, exactly right. Greg really, Rizek picks on the residents all the time and say, hey, I'm right 98% of the time. Right. Well, that means you only kill two out of 100. Right. That, you know, <laughs> the they deserve to die. Very they long. deserve to die. We wouldn't accept that two out of 100 on the airplane that we came on. Oh. It's just not acceptable. So I think that you owe a reasonable explanation to the person if you can just shrug your shoulder and says well it's probably not your heart that's not good enough we don't want to give the wrong impression here there are absolutely good things to do with risk factors they're for counseling a patient on lifestyle if you're a family practitioner or an internist do i think smoking's good for you no do i think being obese is good no they're all perfectly valid for their long-term health, like lowering their blood pressure. But it can't tell you about that person to any reasonable degree that they're safe to go home. So would you guys take the position that you would endorse the Heart Association thing that says, unless you can definitively say, here's your diagnosis, that you do need to go down this set stressor? Makes sense to me, guys. No question. We actually, the insurance company, counsels our insurers that way. We have protocols we don't want to call them protocols no of course guidelines not. Of course not. that we expect suggestions suggestions, suggestions. proper suggestions. language on the bottom you know <laughs> right, right, the lawyer right. and he gets all that language on the bottom but we said the idea is put them through the two sets of enzymes do the two sets of ekgs and then if you don't you're in a small facility whether you do it yourself, some places have chest pain centers, some places arrange it 24 to 72 hours. Exactly. Which is perfectly safe. Which All is the perfectly safe in low category patients. Right. Which are the ones we're sending home. So they get but an you, aspirin on the way out, maybe even a little beta blocker. We'll do the test in the morning. We can't do it now. Yeah. You've done a reasonable thing. And you've talked to someone, you've arranged the follow up. Right. And so essentially what you've done is we've taken the risk down from maybe 4 or 5% that we used to miss, 4, 5, mm-hmm. 6% down to 0. 0.2 to 0.4%, depending on which studies you're doing. Yeah, and in most countries, that it's would be okay. an acceptable miss yeah. rate. In the old way, essentially society said that wasn't good enough. So we put more studies in, more chest pain places, and now we're down to about 0. 0.2 to 0. 0.4%, which is pretty darn good, and we're probably not going to get any better. Oh, I want to reach down this microphone and strangle a few people. Look, I understand what these guys are saying. Uh, they're looking at it from an outcomes point of view, a risk management point of view. My point in the debate, Rick, was, if you remember correctly, it all depends on what you mean by a reasonable risk of acute coronary syndrome. Are you really saying that a 19-year-old comes in with chest pain and it seems like musculoskeletal, but I'm not really sure that I should do two sets of troponins and put them on a treadmill and work them up for an acute coronary syndrome? That is absolutely ridiculous. The number of false positives is so much more than the number of true positives. We will hurt really hurt more people than we help if we do that. If we do CT scans on these really low-risk patients, we will hurt many more people than we help. If it's about producing the best outcomes for the most number of people, then what you're saying on face value is absolutely ridiculous. So it all comes down to your definition of I'm not sure and I'm a little bit worried. So 19-year-old with no history of normal EKG and he's just worked out yesterday and he's got a little sore chest, we agreed that's a really low-risk patient. 60-year-old comes in and that's a vague story. Yes, I get it. Those people need a workup. To send home a 50-year-old dude with some sweating who has really atypical chest pain is crazy. I agree with that. But I'm worried about the low end. I don't want people to get the idea that everybody with a chest needs a full cardiac workup. It's like saying everybody with belly pain needs a CT scan. That's insanity. We will kill through radiation-induced carcinomas many more people than we'll help. 
come on, let's use the same logic for this that we use for abdominal pain. Okay, I understand that the risks are higher, so our threshold is lower, but we are not going to scan everybody with the chest. That's all I want to say. I wish I was in the room. I could have brought these guys to their senses. Must I do everything? Guys, let me switch gears for a second and throw another one out on the table that we've spent a fair time looking over cases, trying to develop some teaching points, and unfortunately presents the ED with a very common complaint, and that's low back pain, and we have definitely seen a rise in cases of cauda equina, and I'm not sure whether it's because testing is more available or mechanism of injury, but there's no question that this is a diagnosis that you have to do two things. You have to think about it, and from the thought process, you need an MRI and a back surgeon. Well, I honestly believe that we see huge amounts of back pain. It's not very often I ask for an acute MRI because where I'm working right now, I have to send the patient. But you do have to examine the patients every time. This is what happens. There is an innate prejudice when you pick up that chart that says low back pain on it, particularly if they also have terminal fibromyalgia. And now you've got that chart in your hand or the nurse has an attitude and they say, well, they're back again. You know what? Clear your head. Go in. Did you actually check the muscles? Did you check the toes? Did you feel the feet? I don't want any of my people working up low back pain that still have their shoes and socks and pants on. Complete Be- neurologic exam, any paresthesias, any problems with urine. You've got to ask the questions, too, so the chart's got to reflect it. You've thought about that which can be bad, and you've put the right elements to rule it out. I'm going to only correct one word of the counselor's story here, and that is I would prefer to use the appropriate neurological exam. You're not going to check them for near point and far point accommodation. But what you know, if you can check them down the body for pin, you check them near their rectum or in the inner thighs for sensation, you actually watch the leg move. We're not going to miss very many of these. And the other problem is we honestly believe that we've examined them if they've actually sort of walked in and laid on the cut, that's not enough. Good point. I honestly think but, that when you all Greg, the cases I've seen, they have not been properly examined, and it's rare I see one that we missed with one visit. The bitch is when they've had three visits and they're getting worse, and nobody ever asked, "How come you smell a urine?" <laughs> yeah, last year in the EMA course, we had a lecture on red flag back pain. The fact of the matter is, in back pain, that's all you need to know. Because no matter what you do with the rest, it doesn't matter. You can yes. give them the muscle relaxers that don't. You can give them the pain <laughs> pills that may be of helpful. You can send them to PT or not. None of that stuff really matters. But you must know red flag back pain. And when you focus on red flag back pain, it is a really small cluster of things that you need to know. And despite the fact that back pain is $100 bajillion a year, all your ER doc needs to know is red flag back pain. I think but that's ER the way it is for almost ch- every complaint that comes to us. There's two or three things that can kill them or cause bad problems right. that you need to pick up right away. See, one of the every- real problems is that they say, well, he's just a drug seeker. Well, you know, the last time I checked, the guys who get epidural abscesses are drug users. And so they ought to be a higher risk group, not a lower yeah, risk absolutely. group. Absolutely. Now, there is one other thing you can do. That is, when you pick that chart up, you can put it back in the rack, and hopefully Rick will see him when he swings through. On Red, it. black, uh, black. Yeah, I would point. never sick that on the patient. You know, he, <laughs> he deserves a guy who actually works for a living and does this circle, all the time. Circle that yeah. temperature, 100.4. 
red flag, red flag. Absolutely. It's not that hard if you just focus on red flag back pain because you won't get into these troubles. But I also see there's an increase in these spinal epidural abscesses. Are you finding that oh, at sure. all? Yeah. But you're both saying the same thing in a sense, that you have to think of these things first. Because you you're not going to pick them up it, you if won't you don't think about it. Exactly. So you've got to have in your head first. You go in the room, then you rule them out. Whatever it takes, like Greg said, the appropriate exam. But do, that's what you rule those out. We do do the worst first approach, which we often get criticized by the family doctors who take the other point of view because they're seeing a different spectrum of patients. Yeah, that's spectrum You over-order bias, right? and those kinds of things. But we are the worst first doctors, and I think that if you have that, you got to think that way to be safe. Let me also say that I'm a cheap guy all the way along until we're ordering wine, of course, in the wine of the month. $18 bottles. <laughs> but the problem is this. Don't do a test that doesn't answer the question on the table. How many times have you seen a low back pain case where they shot a plain set of x-rays or even shot a CT? I'm sorry. If you think that the spinal cord is compromised, we have a test for that. But literally, it isn't twice a year that I call up and say, I'm sending this one in. I've sent the other 500 back pains home with no test and a little medication, and they're fine. This guy's got to go tonight. Another part of these things that I've watched is delay, 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 because the nervous system doesn't regenerate well. And now they come in and they're tingling, and the doc's thinking about it. And now he's given some pain medicine. Now he's not so sure. Now he's got to call so-and-so to get the MRI done. And the nurses point out that the patient had to be wheeled out to their car. Oh, exactly. That's in the chart from the last visit. <laughs> yeah, yes. What you're seeing is down the line, it's so easy to be five hours into something. And now the nurses yeah. are saying, you know, their legs aren't quite right. And now by the time you mobilize everybody... The only thing that counts is time of suspicion right. to time of drainage. See, you're giving examples of what Graham is going at in terms of what we're seeing in terms of delay. So it's not only delaying antibiotics, getting the surgeon, delaying us. We're seeing a lot of this now in patients having to be transferred because you don't have the specialist. And so where do you transfer them to? How do you transfer them? And so a lot of people don't really know how that process works. And they call a hospital that sort of gives you the runaround of how about, oh, yeah, we well, got to talk to the resident, you got to talk to the chief, you got to talk to the attending. And now it's four or five hours before you get to the neurosurgeon who accepts that kind of patient. You've got to be on the phone right away because these are things that you've got to start writing things down because the plaintiff's attorneys are going to look at this and say, We have a call you log. Just, you just didn't act fast enough. You should have done this quicker. You should have called this person. You should have got them transferred faster. If they didn't answer in two hours over there, you need to be calling somebody else. And all surgeons say and the same thing. This is going thing. up a lot. If I'd only gotten to them a couple of hours sooner, you'd be tap dancing today. Right. And I've heard that. I've and, heard them sell us down the river yeah. and say, oh, it would have been fine if I'd only gotten there quicker. Yeah, I think the other thing that we're guilty of as a specialty is this nice guys at night syndrome where we don't wake up the technician for the three or four hours and we sit and we it's 2 o'clock in the morning. They live 15 minutes away. They just went home and you say, oh, I'll sit on this, whether it's an ultrasound, a CT, and now this intrinsic delay that you have is now six, seven hours and it's a done deal. So Henry's Graham, law is the first person you save in emergency medicine is yourself. I mean... The patient hasn't retained you to take care of anybody else but them. Yes. You are the retained agent and servant of the patient. You don't care. I'm always apologetic on the phone, but the bottom line is it's got to be done. Yeah. So, so we did chest pain. We did back pain. 
those are kind of like two big ones. What else you got on your list? Well, we can do Bob's favorite subject. We can talk about radiology claims in emergency medicine. <laughs> oh, you know, actually, his, his systolic blood pressure just went up forty. We're going to be talking about here, this. Uh, you know, we're going to be talking about this in this tape. That has to do with the question of a family suing because of the radiation dose giving to their child. This is a bizarre, three standard deviations from norm case, but the child received dozens of times what the safe radiation dose to the point where they actually had radiation burns to their face. Well, what's your spin on this, Bob? Well, the radiation thing is I think we're going to find out a lot more about that in the future because we're doing, what, 20, 30 percent of people show up now for get a CT scan in an emergency department. It's quite high. It's not my patients, but that's yeah. all right, Bob. Well, depends where you work, Greg. We well, have that's sick it. patients in big that, hospitals. That's because you're examining them. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I think that's going to be a story down the road. But I think more about what was Graham about in radiology is this, A, it's communications. Did you get the information back on a timely basis for the radiologist? B, did you have a system to be able to follow up on those things where the radiology reading gets changed? And Greg and I go back far enough. We used to argue about this. It's like, why can't radiologists be real doctors and read the films when the patient's <laughs> still in the emergency department right. like we are? What a concept. Yeah, so you get a final reading from the right radiologist at the right time all right, for the patient right then and there. And with digital technology today, that should happen all the time. Guys in Los Angeles, they send one guy to Italy for six weeks at Spain, a time. Spain, isn't it? Well, whatever it is. Whatever. It's somewhere so, so he's reading the night. He's awake and alert in Italy in the daytime, reading the night films for the guys back in Los Angeles. So he's got privileges there. He works there. And he's fresh. And he's providing real-time help to the patients and the docs in the emergency department. So you get a CT scan read by the guy who knows how to read it in real time, who's awake and providing quality care. You can ask the question, what happens in the middle of the Pacific Ocean on a U.S. carrier, an aircraft carrier? They bounce those signals off of a satellite to Bethesda, Maryland, where they're read, and 20 minutes later, the CT scan result is back on the carrier. What I ought to do with some of my patients is make them join the Navy, put them out at sea, and then we'd get a faster result on the CT scan. Well, we have a letter coming up that's at the end of the tape regarding a specific question about since radiology is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, are we going to be able to defend ourselves when we make a mistake reading x-rays when the radiologist could have read that x-ray? Now, the spin on it was this is not the standard of care. It is in the core competencies of emergency physicians to be able to read plain films, films those yes. kinds of things. And the analogy was you don't ask a cardiologist to read an EKG. So... I think we don't want to go down the slippery slope that says the expectation will be that radiologists will read all films all the time. No, but you're talking about special studies where it does make a difference oh, yeah, in life I, I and agree. death. I agree. So you're talking about did they pick up a subarachnoid hemorrhage that's subtle? Did the CT scan show evidence of appendicitis? You're basically talking CTs and ultrasounds. Then, yeah, aren't you? you're Absolutely. talking about special imaging studies where, A, we don't do that routinely, and, B, it makes a huge difference. We used to send home a lot of people with CTs that are kind of read by the radiologists from the university coming over at night, and they reread it the next day and say, hey, they missed this subarachnoid hemorrhage. To some extent. That's someone who just went home and died. To some extent, Bob, this is also a function of when you trained, because the new guys coming out now in emergency medicine are going to be much better trained. They're all yeah. going to be able to do ultrasound. They're going to know more about the scans. I mean, if you look around this room, it looks like we're shooting a Flomax commercial. But if you have the young emergency docs here... I think they're going to get better and better and better at certain of these things, which you really need to do. But the other thing that's getting better 
is it's always daylight somewhere in the world. We can send the films. Yes. And if there's a serious question, even on a plain film, if you don't know what you're looking at, bite the bullet, send the film, get the reading you want. It's like Rick said, the stuff that we do routinely, plain films, EKGs, belly exams, you name it, we but always have a resource if we're not comfortable. Right. The surgeon to refill the belly, the cardiologist to look at the EKG and bounce it off of them. We've all faxed EKGs over to cardiologist's office and say, Absolutely. hey, just help me out. Just take a look at this, whether it's home or his office during the daytime. So we always have that resource that we should be able to use, whether it's the radiologist or somebody else. But for special things that make a difference, right, it's time to sort of put aside waking people up, being nice guys. They need to be in the game practicing just like everybody else. You know, the surgeon has no problem coming in the middle of the night, never complains, never moans, just comes in and takes out the appendix. Yeah. So why can't this specialty do just as well by our patients? Well, you're inferring areas? that you've gotten burned by delayed readings of CAT scans and ultrasounds. Is that basically the distillate here? Anybody who's reviewed cases knows that happens with some degree of regularity. Whether it's a overread <clears throat> of an x-ray or the special study or something, either one, and it's not just the timeliness of it. Then what you get into problems are the communication issues. He reads it, finds out it's an abnormality, calls ED. Somehow that information doesn't get to the emergency physician, and the patient doesn't get called back. So you need both. First of all, if you did it timely and got final readings right away, you'd eliminate this other problem. That's one thing. But even the ones they overread us, you know, we read a chest X-ray and sort of miss maybe a small pneumo the next day. You've got to have a communication system that works. But it doesn't even have to be an acute problem. If that film says on it, you know, again, no broken ribs, this and thing, there's a one-centimeter nodule located here, clinical correlation required, and further studies suggested. You know, that has nothing to do with the acute reason they're in the department, but it can't fall into nothingness. It's got to go somewhere. So someone can say, you know, Ralph, maybe we ought to look at that, because I've got missed cancer cases where two years later they come back to the department and now it's the size of a tennis ball. I actually had a case where the thoracic surgeon said to the family, I'm looking at the old film here. Yeah, as I look at it now, that may have been it. Well, that was a helpful comment, wasn't it? Yeah, he says, yeah, the radiologist sort of said something. And all of a sudden the emergency doc is in the soup. That's system issues. Say something about systems, Graham, because that's one of the years we see a lot of. One of the things that our observations is that probably one of the greatest things that's happened to emergency medicine in the last 20 years is our ability to work with the hospital and change hospital behavior for things that we're at risk at in the emergency department. Let me give you an example. We know that in, in looking at our data, 82% of the time the hospital gets named when one of our emergency physicians gets named. And that one of the things that's changed is they have a lot more first dollar coverage. So they're very interested in partnering with us in terms of changing operational risk in the emergency department, whether that's better trained people out at triage, whether that's tightening up radiology systems, whether that's dealing with boarding systems, throwing more resources. So I think that's something that's worth pointing out is that the hospital risk manager, you said it earlier, Greg, I think you were talking about essentially putting them on notice and trying to correct something that you know is risk for us, but it's also risk for them. The hospital is a partner. If you share insurances, that's one thing. If they are next down the road and there are separate sets of insurance, they now become, at least the plaintiff gives you the decency of stabbing you in the front. The hospital can stab you in the back. And there's no question that they're going to sometimes look and try and make sure that it looks like it's a physician question 
and not a system or a nurse or other question because they know whose policy they want first on that table. Well, let me ask you guys a question. The emergency departments are generally busier than they have been in the past, and many times physicians find themselves basically in a corner because the volume is such and the intensity is such that it is now becoming dangerous. There may be some staffing issues on the part of the hospital. They may be call-in six, those kinds of things. What is your recommendation with regards to documentation on the chart that the department now is getting out of control? Is there any way that you see that you can mitigate your damages by indicating that there is some particularly big stressors going on right now? The too-busy defense. Yes, that's a, yeah, <laughs> thank you just, very much. Just sort of say it. This has actually come up in a number of cases where the patients wait 12, you know, four, six, 12 hours out in triage or out in the waiting area, and you just we're, look, we're too busy to get to them kind of thing. Or same thing in the back, boarding issues. By and large, doesn't go over too well. Wouldn't think so. Well, you knew you typically get busy. You know it's flu season. You know it's going to have these spikes in volume. You have to have some system to flex and be able to solve that to some degree. Understanding that almost no hospitals in the United States have real surge capacity. They're all packed. Uh, what but I've we kind of know how packed we are what on a I've regular done, basis. What I've suggested and what I've done a few times when it's really overwhelming, and it's not very often for me, but I will put down disaster mode at the top of that chart. Because if anything ever happens, and on everyone I'm seeing at that time, because you do shift gear. We are doctors who shift uh-huh. gears. And we cut corners when we need to. Absolutely. The worst night of my life was a busload of kids that got hit by a cement truck, and I'm the only doc in the hospital. Did they all get perfect trauma exams? No, but they're all alive. Believe yeah. me, you have to We're not taking care of do. one patient at a time. Well, it's okay to point that out, that... Yes, I was involved with that person, but this one over here was coding, and the trauma came in over here. Well, my question is, is there any reason to preemptively declare this on the chart, or should this be retrospectively done? Well, here's the log. You can see what I was dealing with kind of thing, rather than telegraphing right at the beginning, you're in a compromised position. I would think, if, unless it's a real disaster like Greg does, it'll be, say, what's your standard? Well, I, I normally write that down there. Well, if this time you didn't happen to write that down, do you say, well, it wasn't that way? So I'd rather you be able to reconstruct it sort of After go backwards. Yeah, and you let someone else kind of make that argument for okay. you in a sense that hospital comes in, look, this is why we were short staff. Here we had all these people here. No, Here's the number of people you. getting admitted. And one of the things I want to stress is really talking about fixes of chronic problems that we see recurrently as opposed to the heat of the battle or the patient's there. And I think we would all agree that, as Greg said, the hospital is your partner and you've got to pick your battles. Right. Oh. You don't want to run down the hallway with it. <laughs> If you talk about trends, Rick, and it's always been the case, like Greg says, that's the big pot of money. But there's a growing trend to blame hospitals for everything the doctors do. One is some doctors don't have malpractice insurance anymore. You're down in South Florida, they're always going after the hospitals. Two is the hospital does have more money. Doctors have limited numbers. In fact, in emergency medicine, you really don't want to buy huge amounts of liability insurance because they'll just come after that. It's just a bigger pot. So you'd rather limit yourself because they're not going to try, not usually anyway, try to break the doctor's bank. But... Other reasons are is, like you know you mentioned them, Tal, it's a way to get around state tort reforms. You can sue under federal law. You can sue the hospital directly. You can avoid expert witness requirements. You can avoid <clears throat> affidavit of merit requirements. And you can attack the damage caps. There was just a federal court in your home state, California, that says for screening exams, which we do a lot of in emergency departments, the caps do not apply. 
Oh, really? Yes. And so it just happened just a few months ago. So now you got plaintiff's attorneys scrambling all over California to bring cases against the hospital under this to avoid that cap. Same thing's going on in, it's already been preempted in Louisiana. And in Florida, the way Florida's tort reform was written was, and the reason it happened in California, because it was written for professional negligence, right? Failure to stabilize is kind of professional negligence. Screening claims are not. They're disparate treatment. So it's a different standard. So in Florida, they said, all right, if it's an EMTALA-related claim and, you know, it's an emergency condition, all these good things apply to you. The caps, higher standards of liability, you know, clear and convincing or gross negligence. So what they say is, okay, you evaluate the patient. Well, doc, you decided it wasn't his heart. You sent him home. So you decided it wasn't an emergency condition. And so, therefore, it's not an EMTALA issue. Therefore, it's not a failure to stabilize. Therefore, the caps don't apply in Florida on that case. And so let's say you did admit him. Let's say, well, you'd like to make the argument then. Well, everything in admissions is stable. Well, is that the legal definition? No. So now that you've been trying to say, even if you admitted the patient, you didn't think it was a real life emergency. You just admitted him just in case. So now they're trying to get around that. So think about everything we pass in terms of tort reform. They're always trying to poke holes at it and try to get at things and expand the liability. And going after the hospital is one way to do that. I understand the reason that the hospital does worse than you and I do in court is because people can relate to a doctor. They can like a doctor. They can sympathize with a doctor. Nobody relates to the hospital. They're the people who cost a whole lot of money. It's a very nice building. Bad things happen there. They admitted their uncle there once and he died. The fact that he was 98 doesn't make any difference. If you try a building in an institution, you're going to do better than if you try the doctor. And all the plaintiff's attorneys know that. If you try only a doctor, we win about 85% of the time. If you try just the building, they win about half the time. And for a plaintiff to win half the time, that's real good money. Let me toss another one out there that seems to be a recurring theme, and I think we all can learn from it and do a better job. And Bob said earlier, what are the two things that could really go wrong with any patient potentially in front of you? And that's this whole concept of recognizing mechanism of injury. If we say puncture wound near joint, if we say high-speed drill, if we say the words motorcycle and 12-pack, all that's got to be taken into consideration regardless of what the patient looks like in front of you. We've seen whether it's retained foreign bodies, open joints, fracture wounds, spinal injuries. We've all seen that patient comes in three hours after the accident, I feel fine, but was thrown off a motorcycle. Have you seen that as well? Oh, of course. The other thing is we'd like to think it follows a certain course or pattern. We want to fit it into a pattern that we understand. And it doesn't always fit into a pattern like that. And what I really think the problem is, is candor. Sometimes we have to tell patients, are we totally sure yet? No. Could there be a forward body in there that I can't see? Yep. And if you continue to have this problem, this is what we're going to need to know. I advise people in fracture x-rays never to say that it's not broken. There's no obviously displaced injury today. Could there be a hidden, a little crack there? Of course. And if we see something, we'll get back with you. But it's the unknown they don't like. Surprise! You know, now I've got a buried foreign body that's pussing out. Or surprise, you're dead. They don't like surprises. One of the things, Rick, if you point out sort of the way Graham says things, the way Greg says things, there's a way to think about this to avoid risk in emergency departments. It's a learned art. It's a skill. It's not just the practice of medicine. It's easy to go in and take care of people, but you have to go back out. It's sort of like the cognitive thinking ways. Okay, yeah, that's what it is. 
But yeah, on the way out, you ask yourself, what are the two things that could have been that I might have missed that I need to think about? And then if you rule that out, it's sort of it's a check on yourself. This is a way to avoid an area that you know has been high risk because of experiential. So I think doctors aren't grown up knowing how to avoid risk in emergency medicine. They have to be taught that, how to think, how to ask questions, how to react, how to document things, how to discharge patients so that you avoid risk in the long term. This is a learned skill that they don't come born with through their residency program. And they don't necessarily get it in the residency program because, and rightly so, the residency is to teach you how many cells ought to be in the cerebral spinal fluid and does ceftriaxone work for all of them, but it doesn't teach you the interaction that what you need to do to build the safe practice, and that is a skill. If I had to look at the residents who are coming in, there's going to be a transition phase from an academic residency program to a private practice setting where what they have to realize is that interaction skill building the patient bringing them into confidence level and inviting them back in if there's any problem which is not the usual norm in a lot of inner city big city hospitals that's what you need to have so that it's not that you were so dumb you missed it you were so smart you told them i may have to come back and he was right greg and i were together in ann arbor what the company did and this is what I encourage a lot of people to do, is we had a two-day practice science school. So when you came out of your residency, we assumed you knew the science and the medicine and things, but what we taught you was how to practice medicine, the art of the practice of medicine. We didn't teach them any medicine for two days whatsoever. But how do you get people through quickly? How do you communicate? How do you tell them what to look for and when to come back? And so they understand what's going on, so you avoid these risky areas. You have to teach that. They don't come out of residency understanding this, well, some residency, and it's actually more now. You see it a lot more now because of the high-risk areas, but it takes time and effort. Yeah, but the residents, it is not equal across the board. I think across the country, they know a lot about ACS when they come out of the residency. They know a lot about trimalleolar fractures. But the difference in behavior, because what they've seen their attendings do, residents learn not from what their attendings say, but what they do. And now they're going to go into a setting where, you know what, the politics do make a difference. Well, you know, Dan Sullivan tomorrow is giving the Mills talk mm-hmm. on the cognitive processes that doctors use to get them into trouble. He uses the MDJD. And it sounds like when you read the description, it really sounds like mumbo jumbo. It's like holy smokes. But I think that it focuses on the things that you're talking about in terms of trying to restructure your thinking process so that you will be more safe. And the patients are more safe. I can make a small plug for the Emergency Medicine Patient Safety Foundation. Epic, we fund a lot of this. A lot of other people fund it. And if patient safety fellows coming out once a year, and a lot of them are doing exactly that, sort of cognitive thinking, why are we making certain errors? Why are we making decisions and how we make those to have patients safe or not safe? And we need a lot more research in that area. Anything further, guys? Or we're coming to the end of our time. Just one observation, we hear a lot about frequency and acuity. Acuity is still alive and well, certainly in emergency medicine. And our take on it is we don't think we've seen quite the drop-off in frequency that some of the primary care specialties have enjoyed. that fair? I think that's probably true. And across the country, I think if you take most of the people who insure emergency physicians, the comment... Okay, let's call it a wrap. You want to do a little wine of the month? we got to do wine of the month, Rick. Gregory, what do you have? Rick, first of all, I'd like to tell you that here at the Scientific Assembly... I've been assailed, assaulted, kicked over nothing that we've said medically or politically. It's over wine of the month. 
you know, Greg, you ignorant slut. Why did you recommend a $45 bottle of wine? So we're off that kick. We're back into cheap wine again. The literati, the culturati, the cognoscente. Turn your machines off right at this moment. But I'm letting you know right now that Robert Parker, in the last edition of The Wine Advocate, I have no stock in The Wine Advocate. I don't get any money from Parker, but it's one of the best issues ever done, which is essentially the 2,500 best cheap wines in the world. So all you cheapskates out there, listen to this. Listen up right now. He gives an 89 review. That's big time for a Washington State wine, which is Cabernet Sauvignon Columbia Valley. Drink it. It's good. I drink that all the time. As and a the price? And the price, 18 bucks, Rick. Is that considered cheap wine? Yes. Yes. I'm sorry. We're doing no Mad Dog 2020. We are not doing Two Buck Chuck again. All right. I got okay, it. that's cheap. Now, another one is Mason Cellars Sauvignon Blanc. This is a Napa Valley California wine, and it got an 88 review. He has some 88s, which are 80 and $100 a bottle, and this is 18 bucks a bottle. So let's go with this, guys. This isn't that much money. Now, I know you want me to get some cheaper wines. Next time, we're going to review some of the better Italian and some of the better Chilean wines, which he includes in this report. This is a brilliant report. Get it, enjoy it, and, you know, get off my back here, you guys, about the fact that we recommended a $45 a bottle of wine. Well, it was a special bottle, special occasion. It's a special, in fact, I said that. I said this is a special occasion wine. You don't drink this one with your wife. You do it with your girlfriend, yada, yada. But you got to get off my back. Okay, go ahead. All right, we'll talk with you next month. Bye for now. Bye-bye.